And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him, because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words, and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave, and called after Saul, My Lord, the King! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. be with you again as we continue on in our relational wisdom uh, series and they say at a dinner party you should never talk about uh, religion politics or your in-laws well you'll be pleased to know that this isn't a dinner party because we will be discussing all of the above as we seek to understand how we might disagree well now a couple of weeks ago uh, Matt Carvel looked at how uh, biblically speaking it's okay for uh, Christians to disagree and uh, so we won't so much be uh, focusing on uh, the fact that it is possible to disagree uh, on the, uh, with different convictions uh, on the truths of this book. And we'll be focusing more on how uh, we might express those convictions, uh, because an issue for which we must all agree is that we disagree well. Uh, now, in the English language, there are a, a number of sayings, sayings that basically mean the same thing, a collection of sayings that I'm sure you would have heard of, and depending on your viewpoint, uh, could point to a, a national or cultural strength or weakness. Uh, sayings such as, don't rock the boat, don't upset the apple cart, uh, don't ruffle any feathers, don't put anybody's nose out of joint, and don't step on anybody's toes. Uh, well, you'd be interested to learn that in the Nigerian languages, none of these phrases exist. And uh, to be quite frank, if you have African parents, chances are you have no toes left to be stepped on. Uh, but I don't mean to be overly simplistic or even caricaturistic, uh, but it's fair to say that differing cultures handle disagreements differently. And within those cultures, each one of us, each one of us will have a kind of a differing temperaments. And you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Now, these factors that I've described are typically referred to as nature and nurture factors, and it's helpful for us uh, to understand how our nature, nurture, and lived experience uh, serve to shape the lens from which we view life with. Uh, but while it's important, especially in these times, to be firm, to be passionate, to be robust in disagreement, 
uh, we must also be careful not to use nature, nurture, and lived experience to somehow justify ungodly attitudes and arguments uh, to the issues of our day, or if someone espouses an opinion that we particularly disagree with or dislike. Uh, nor must we hide behind these factors, uh, using phrases like, it's just the way I am, it's the way I was brought up, you've not been through what I've been through, or I'm just a passionate person, even if these things are true. The reason is because regardless of nature and nurture, if we cross the, the clear lines that the Bible gives for how we are to relate to one another, and lacking grace, we move from differing to quarreling, from disagreement to divisiveness from being persuaded to being proud, from argument to accusation. While God is not unsympathetic to nature and nurture dynamics, he will nevertheless hold us accountable if we are ungracious to our neighbour, even if we haven't received the same levels of grace in return. Uh, meaning that in our day, there is something of a blurring of these lines going on in that there are new definitions being given because the new definition of to differ is to quarrel. The new definition of disagreement is divisiveness. The new definition of being persuaded is being proud and the new definition of to argue is to accuse. So much so that ungracious disagreement really has become a pandemic of its own in that to disagree ungraciously is, is aggressive, it's pervasive, it's highly transmissible, and it spreads from our hands and our mouths through what we type and how we talk. And the reality is that Christians are not exempt uh, from this pandemic either. I don't know if you've noticed. But I will say this, that those that rightly say that they're passionate about the truths of this book and how they are expressing to society, there can, there can at least be the temptation to move from being passionate to being pig-headed. I think it's because if you're a Christian, chances are you have uh, read uh, some of the, the stories about some of the heroes of this book. Uh, heroes who were uh, from time to time involved in uh, a fierce uh, disagreement and, and dramatic confrontation and Perhaps we imagine that we're doing what they would do. We're being kind of faithful to the cause. Uh, because, because Paul, he does speak uh, fiercely at times, uh, particularly in the book of Galatians. Uh, you see, in the book of Galatians, uh, let me just read some of it to you. This is what it says in Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Paul says this, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He goes on to say, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? This, believe it or not, is actually Paul on decaf. This is Paul on chamomile. Because if you were to read Galatians chapter 5 verse 12, you would see Paul tell some false teaching men to go and get neutered. And uh, I'm not talking about the German pronoun either. So, so why is it okay for Paul to speak like this, right? So why, Paul can speak like this, but I'm not allowed to, to, to speak the same? What? So do you mean to tell me, 
If someone in my small group tells me that they passionately believe that it's right to take down statues with links to slavery, or if someone in my small group tells me that they passionately believe that such statues should remain, I'm not allowed to go medieval? What's going on here? Well, that, that is a, a good and important question. And the reality is that uh, Paul is speaking about uh, really the most important issue of all. He's trying to uh, preserve the, the purity and the simplicity of, of becoming a Christian, of uh, finding your way back to God. That's what Paul's fighting for, uh, the consequence of which lasts for eternity. And so Paul uses the strongest terms that he would possibly use for this category of issue and this category of issue alone. Everything else is in a, in a category below that. Even important things, even really, really important things, uh, this sort of language, Paul would say, is kind of inappropriate, but he reserves it for, for that. But there is a time to rebuke sharply, as Paul puts it. There are occasions. And Paul gives another example in Titus chapter 1, verse 10. He says this, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Why? That they might be sound in the faith. That's, that's, that's the, the time it's appropriate, and only the time when it's appropriate to rebuke sharply, that they might be sound in the faith. Uh, Paul doesn't say rebuke them sharply that they might not be Tories. He doesn't say rebuke them sharply that they might not be Corbynistas or, or Starmanites or, or whatever you want to call them, or I don't know, uh, or whatever. Uh, Paul says, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Uh, Paul goes on to say in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24, and, and this, this, is, this applies to almost every situation in life. He says this, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, Here's what to underline. Correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. As I say, this covers almost every situation in life. And this really, these words are what we see exemplified by David in the passage that we had read for us. And by way of reminder, uh, David is the second king of Israel. David came after Saul, and Saul was chosen by God to be the first king. And after a fairly good start, Saul descends into kind of madness and becomes unfaithful to God, so unfaithful that God rejects Saul and appoints David as king in his place. And David and Saul disagreed. David, um, and their disagreement really was, was twofold, because David disagreed with Saul's political policy. And Saul's political policy at this stage in the story really could be summed up in two words. Kill David. And unsurprisingly, David wasn't kind of up for that. He wasn't voting for Saul at the polls, let's say. But not only did David disagree with Saul, but Saul disagreed with David and God. Because Saul wanted to remain the king and he didn't want to give that up. Even though God had chosen David in his place. And 
And, and here's where the story gets a bit back to the future. Because Saul is a political leader that believes in conspiracy theories. Uh, and Saul is essentially believing the conspiracy that David is out to steal uh, the kingship from him. A theory that has no evidence. A theory that for all intents and purposes appears to have been made up in Saul's own head. As a result, Saul refuses to concede God's election of David and therefore refuses a peaceful transfer of power. Instead, what Saul does is he rallies his servants and supporters and orchestrates an attack on his people. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 22. And the people that Saul organized to attack were those in office, uh, the office of priest. And there is bloodshed. And Saul, Saul doesn't do it himself. No, no. Saul gets his supporters and, and servants to do his dirty work on his behalf. How do you disagree well with political leaders like Saul? Uh, perhaps you can think of one or two in the world. Well, the situation actually gets a bit more complex as well, at least for David. Because Saul isn't just David's political leader. Uh, Saul is also David's, it's his father-in-law. Uh, because David married Saul's daughter, Michal. And Saul, Saul isn't just David's political leader and his father-in-law. He's also David's boss. Because David worked for Saul, worked in his service playing the lyre, which is a musical instrument. So Saul is David's king, father and boss. Game, set, match. However, what we see in David really is an amazing example of how to disagree well with the government, how to disagree well with your relatives, and how to disagree well with your boss. And so, using the words that Paul uh, wrote, uh, let's see how David kind of really exemplifies them. And, and Paul wrote this, and I'll read it again. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. And this is really what we see uh, David doing here. Uh, and I will say, it's not easy uh, to correct those that we consider over us. It's not easy to, 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 to go against, if you like, the, the, the family or, or, or political party. But what might be arguably more difficult is to be disagreed with by those over us. It may be arguably more difficult for your boss to disagree with you, for your family to disagree with you. And as we're seeing in some places in the world, for the state to disagree. Nevertheless, David, David goes ahead and disagrees. He, he, he believes in justice. And not just justice for himself, because Saul is trying to kill him for years, but justice for the people of God. Because Saul really was oppressing his people. And David knew that he had been tasked with the responsibility of, of, of being a good king, a man after God's own heart and leading the people well. So it wasn't just about him. It was about the destiny of the people of, 
of God. And, and, and David, therefore, stands up to power, as it were. And he, he speaks robustly to Saul, saying these words. He says, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks to do you harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. So David, David is firm with Saul. But see how David kind of greets Saul. He greets him by saying, my Lord, the king. He bows with his head, excuse me, he bows with his face to the earth. Uh, he, it says he pays him homage. David even says, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. And you could say, well, surely this is David just sort of buttering Saul up to save his own bacon, right? Uh, well, no, uh, because in the story, David has the opportunity to, to, to kill Saul. But instead, he, he cuts a piece of Saul's robe off and shows Saul and says, look, I had a knife and I came this close to you. You didn't even know I was there. But I want to prove to you that this conspiracy that I'm out to get you, it's just not true. But it says that even in touching Saul's robe, it says David's heart struck him. So this wasn't some superficiality or platitudes just to appease Saul. No, no. David had a deep love for Saul as a man and he had a great respect for the office of king of Israel. David lived so uh, honorably that even though Saul was oppressing him and trying to kill him and oppressing his people for years, I cannot find a single place in this book that David speaks evil about Saul. I just can't find one. Perhaps because David understood scriptures like Exodus chapter 22, verse 28. You shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. David understood scriptures like Exodus 20, verse 12. Honor your father and mother with, with Saul being his father-in-law. No, David corrected his opponent with gentleness. With gentleness. But some might say, okay, okay. The issue is David didn't have enough passion. If David was as passionate as I am, if David was really, really passionate, if he was as passionate as I am for the causes that I'm involved with, for some of the, the things that I stand for, he wouldn't have been able to help himself. He wouldn't have been able to correct the generals. He would have given Red Saul the right act. He would have told Saul a few home truths at the same time. David just, he just wasn't passionate enough. Well, I would say to that, <laughs> do you know who we're talking about here? This is David. David. One of the most passionate men ever. The writer of countless psalms. He wrote verses like this in Psalm 63. David writes, O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He goes on to say, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. Wow. That's, that's passion. No, David was more passionate than we are. Uh, just he chose to correct his opponents with gentleness and show grace to an evil boss 
political leader and family member. And something of this mingling of, of passion and gentleness, it, we not only see in the life of David, and we not only see, of course, in the life of Jesus, but we also see in the life and ministry of the great Dr. Martin Luther King, a man so passionate that if you were to uh, go to YouTube and look at some of his uh, preachers, I guarantee you the hairs on your neck will stand up. Yet a man whose ministry was characterized by, by gentleness. He didn't accuse his, his, his opponents, though he could have. And on the subject of accusation, in the Bible, there is one called the accuser. It's not God. And if you believe in Jesus, you are no children of his. No. David understood. Martin Luther King understood something vital. That while winning arguments is not unimportant, true and lasting change comes by winning hearts. Which means that simply winning arguments is not enough. We need a more potent weapon. Why? Because the battle is not against flesh and blood. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 4 says, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. What's the Christian's greatest weapon? What I would submit to you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God. So David, he, he was passionate for justice. But just as passionate as David was for justice, he was also just as passionate in how he loved his enemies and opponents. And that really is the heart of disagreeing well. Jesus puts it like this. He says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So let me ask you this. Are you praying for the people you disagree strongly with? Do you pray for them before you proceed to correct them? Do you pray for yourself before you proceed to correct anyone? Even in your disagreement, are you through your words showing your love and respect for the person that you disagree with? And is your passion really morphing into something uglier? Is your passion kind of starting to morph into kind of hatred? Jesus says... Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. So, so while David is really good at this, surely Jesus is the, the great example. No one beats Jesus in this area. How, how does Jesus love his enemies and pray for those who persecute him? Well, we see in Jesus' life, he, he chose disciples <laughs> with incomplete understanding and incorrect opinions. People like you and me, uh, they, didn't, they didn't always say the right thing around Jesus. In fact, they often said the wrong thing. You can read about it in the, in the Gospels. And then often when they did say the right thing, they said it with the wrong heart or with the wrong motives. But, but what did they say about Jesus? How did they say Jesus responded? What was Jesus like to be around, even if he disagreed? Well, Jesus' best friend in John chapter 1 puts it like this. His friend, John says that Jesus was full of grace and truth. 
So they get it wrong. They mess up. They say the wrong thing. What are they met with? Grace and truth. Friends, Jesus didn't come to cancel or condemn sinners. He came to befriend of sinners. But, but what about in his death? Do we see the love of God in Jesus' death? You bet we do. Because Jesus, the, the, the son of David, the, the, the greater David, the, the, the greater king, would uh, be hunted down politically by the authorities of his day, hunted down by his family, his Jewish brethren, and hunted down for the work he did. And after they seized him, beat him, whipped him, spat in his face and hung him to the cross, Jesus looked out at the crowd. The crowd that was not long ago saying, crucify him, crucify him, and you deserve it, you deserve it. And he looked out over that crowd and he disagreed. But do you know what Jesus said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus forgives. And what about now? I tell you, friends, Jesus, Jesus isn't on the cross right now. He is risen from death. <laughs> That's the good news. He's at the right-hand side of power, the right-hand side of God himself. And in that position right now, Jesus, he knows everything including your sin and my sin. He knows it. And he doesn't agree. But how does, Jesus spend his, how does Jesus spend his energy in heaven right now? Does Jesus spend his energy preparing to prosecute you? No. No, he spends his energy praying for you. Hebrews 7.25, he lives forever to make intercession for you. Did you know Jesus has prayed for you already this morning? Did you know Jesus is going to pray for you this evening, tonight, before you go to sleep? Did you know Jesus is praying for you right now, even as I speak this moment? naming you to his Father in heaven. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. No, Jesus in his life, death, resurrection and ascension he doesn't berate label and accuse instead he loves forgives and prays for his opponents and enemies winning their hearts in the process and this is something of what grace looks like so brothers and sisters we will disagree but when we do Let's disagree loving one another. Let's disagree forgiving one another. Let's disagree and pray for one another with the power that he so richly supplies. And in a world that knows so little of this, we reveal some of the values of the kingdom of heaven because we reveal 
the values of the king.